Hello and welcome to the Vicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Vicom, based here in Jerusalem in Israel. It is Thursday, the 22nd of October, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the uh, member of the Knesset, uh, Michal Kotlawanch from the Blue and White Party. Michal, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Perhaps we can start, and you can, uh, for those of, those of our audience not familiar, if you could just introduce yourself briefly and tell us a bit about your background before you entered politics. Absolutely. Um, so I'm a bit of a, you know, multiple identity byproduct, um, having uh, been born in Jerusalem, grown up in Montreal, Canada, um, uh, moved to Israel uh, to serve as a lone soldier and study law and returned to Canada to study law for my master's from McGill University and uh, and then actually back to Israel only 10 years ago. Um, I say that because I think that the multiple identities um, and the um, diversity or viewpoint diversity that emanate from multiple identities is extremely important and is a part of not only my background, but what I bring to the fore in the Knesset currently. Um, so as an Israeli Canadian, um, indeed, I um, carry both identities proudly. Um, and uh, in, in addition to um, international law and human rights research and activism um, over the last, um, you know, uh, well, 10 years uh, since returning to Israel, much longer than that, actually, since my first degree in law, my LLB, um, and then most recently, also in the last four years as legal counsel and part of the legal team to the Golden family, um, uh, Hadar Golden, uh, who is a soldier deceased and held by Hamas along with Oron Shaul, another soldier, and two Israeli civilians, uh, and have been very much engaged in the legal plight for their return. So we'll certainly talk about uh, their, th that legal campaign uh, later on. But if we can just go back to kind of your, your entry into, into politics or more specifically into the Knesset, um, I understand you were originally part of Moshe Ya'alon's uh, Telem faction, but when it came to your turn to enter, you chose to join with the, with the blue and white uh, um, uh, faction in the government. Um, is that right? Could you explain your, your decision making? Or maybe Absolutely. also, sorry, um, or sorry also, explain kind of this anomaly of how you were able to, to choose. Absolutely. So, so, so you're 100% right. I'm one of the founding members, in fact, of Telem, Moshe Bogi Alon's Telem party, and in fact, contributed my contribution to the um, um, uh, party platform uh, that we published with regards or from the perspective of both um, international law and Israel standing in the international arena and uh, Israel diaspora relations and the imperative to combat anti-Semitism and my contribution from my own professional experience. Um, in fact, um, having joined about two years ago. Um, when uh, Telem was founded, uh, Moshe Yalun actually called for the joining together of several parties. Um, and indeed, that's how Blue and White was formed. It was formed out of three parties at the time, Yeshatid, Telem, and Chosen Lisrael, Israel Resilience Party, and together joined a, a, a joint slate uh, of blue and white. Uh, I don't know if your listeners know, but Israel then sustained what was a horrific, uh, um, you know, three elections, um, one after the other, when there was no clear result. And after the third election, um, when not only was there no clear result, but coronavirus or COVID-19 um, was a challenge that we still at the time didn't even know the magnitude of, um, it was clear to me 
um, having joined forces with the other parties, but really being clear on the values that I bring to the fore um, in terms of the commitment to the unity, the internal unity um, of Israel's resiliency um, internally, and uh, the commitment to take responsibility for what I viewed as three election campaigns that didn't um, reach any clear result. And in fact, if I had to bet, the only result it did reach was that the Israeli public was vying for a unity government. Um, and that's a whole other conversation about, but the yeah. ideological differences, if you depersonalize and depoliticize, um, the ideological differences, in fact, between the larger parties that were running in those three election campaigns are very, very minimal. Um, and so um, believing very deeply, actually, even after election number two, that unity was a priority. And then after election number three with coronavirus or the COVID-19 challenge as an imperative for unity um, in order to address the challenges that would arise. Um, and we see them as we speak um, unfold. Um, I, I was very sorry that Telem and Yeshatid chose to leave Blue and White. Um, and I prefer to see it in that way because the original understanding was that Benny Gantz was the leader of this uh, joint slate. And as such, he would be making the decision as to what Blue and White would do um, as a result of the elections, um, whatever they would be. Um, my understanding was that it was right to join the unity government. And in fact, when I had that possibility, and just to address that last part of your question, in fact, I had that possibility, um, first of all, because according to the law that enabled me to enter Knesset, what's known as the Norwegian law, it's really the Israeli version of the Norwegian law, but what enabled me to enter the Knesset actually as part and parcel of that law um, was the choice given to each of the representatives um, uh, that would be entering um, from the joint slate to choose with which of the parties, you know, they that they originally were with, they would be joining um, the joint slate. So I remained, I, I actually chose to remain within blue and white and essentially tell him um, is in the opposition whereas I am in or as part of the coalition government. Thank you for that. So I mean, I'd love to hear what it's like in the Knesset these days. I mean obviously working under the conditions of corona what's the how would you describe the the, the general atmosphere and kind of uh, what, what, the, what the vibe is? So I'll start with my uh, with my uh, maybe sense or my general um, understanding of my deep, deep responsibility. And I, I sense a tremendous sense of urgency. Um, I have to say that I really come in every day with, um, with um, my eye completely on the public. By the way, the public, when I say the public, I really don't differentiate Arabs and Jews, religious and secular, left and right. Um, I think that Israel is experiencing, and I don't think, I know that Israel is experiencing one of the largest or biggest challenges it has ever confronted, both in terms of um, obviously health and economy, but also in terms of the internal cohesion of the very fabric of Israeli society, the very internal resiliency, which was already, um, um, you know, uh, I would say uh, after three election results, after three election campaigns, and even before that was already being pulled at the seams. And I am very concerned about the internal cohesion of Israeli society. And so with that sense of urgency, looking at both the economic challenges, the health challenges, and alongside them, the emotional well-being or the societal challenges of Israeli society, I come into work um, every single day with a tremendous sense of responsibility and um, and mission. Um, and that comes into play, um, just for your question, in terms of the activity uh, at the committee level. So I actually sit on 
I think it's coming coming to close to 10 committees. I sit on six main committees, the Law Committee, um, the Aliyah and Klita Committee, uh, uh, Women's Status and Children's Rights. I chair the committee um, on, on drug and alcohol use. Um, and uh, I formed a subcommittee for Israel-Diaspora Relations. I sit on the Security Committee and Foreign Affairs, the Security and Foreign Affairs Committee, and on the subcommittee for Foreign Affairs. And I've just joined a couple of other subcommittees within that main committee. So I can tell you, and what's important about this list of committees is the majority of the work that's done in Knesset I'd say in normal circumstances happens at the committee level. It enables the members of the committees to very often, hopefully, transcend political divide, religious divide and so forth, and really work together for the benefit of the entire Israeli public. Um, these days, there are two main challenges that I would maybe um, spell out. The first is COVID-19 and a lot of our attention naturally, understandably, in all of the committees, in every which way, goes to the um, challenges that I've described, both health and economic, and of course, as far as I'm concerned, and with the committees that I sit on, also the societal, psychosocial, if you'll have, um, um, elements and manifestations of this tremendous challenge. Um, with specifically with regards to the committee I chair on drug and alcohol use, I have to say that the issue of addictions, um, which I you know, sort of chose to um, um, as a looking glass or as a prism for what this committee focuses on is extremely troubling. Um, uh, and in, in, in this situation of growing anxiety and depression, the combination of the psycho psychosocial implications of the COVID-19 challenge with um, a very lagging behind understanding of addictions and the manifestations of use and abuse of substances um, are, um, as far as I'm concerned, very, very disconcerting. Um, the second challenge that I would say is um, this political deadlock that we are in. So you may know um, that um, Blue and White is um, insisting on basically upholding what I would call the technical infrastructure, which enabled this uni uh, unity government. That is the coalition agreement um, that was formed, uh, that was written, and as a lawyer, you know, uh, agreements have to be upheld. So the agreement that was written between Blue and White and signed between Blue and White and the Likud party, um, as far as I'm concerned, really represent that technical unity that we formed. Um, the hope, and I think I speak for all of Blue and White, the deep hope um, of Blue and White as a priority at this point would have been that we would be um, not only in the technical unity piece, but in the, in the in the unity advancing, you know, um, the essential unity, I would say, that needs to be um, addressed in terms of Israel's internal fabric or the resiliency of Israel's society. Um, we haven't gotten there at all. We are still struggling um, to uphold the, the, the tenets of the, of the agreement signed, the coalition agreement. And as an example to that, and I think it's a testament to the growing frustration and the challenge, which you may have refer, been referring to in Knesset, is that we still have not um, adopted the two-year, the biannual um, budget, which the agreement allotted for. It was meant to be 2020, 2021, and here we are in November, and it is imperative in order for us to be able to address the growing challenges in healthcare, in education, in, in mental health, in all of the issues, of course, in you know, in the from the financial perspective, it is imperative that we have a budget, because as you know, without being able to plan just one year ahead, I'm not even talking about long-term plans anymore, one year ahead, none of the ministries can actually function. So that is the growing frustration. Um, that is the growing imperative 
to uphold that agreement. As I said, you know that structural or the 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 um, uh, you know that 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 infrastructure for the unity government that we are in, and that is what is challenging most of the Knesset's activity currently. There are a few other symptoms of that. So, um, you know, the law um, ministerial law committee has to meet, the ministers have to approve bills um, that are to be passed. Well, they haven't met in a very long time. So there are real challenges to the functioning of this unity government right now, which really affects our ability to do our job for the benefit of all of Israel's citizens. Well, let me ask you a kind of a, a political question. And as you talk about the the the, 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 the essential need to pass a budget, I mean, it was it was actually I think December seventeen that a budget, a two-year budget, was passed for eighteen and nineteen. So we're a long way, almost three years since the last budget was uh, was passed. But we understand there are political ramifications for your for your for your coalition partners and the Likud and, prim and primarily the the prime minister and his uh, calculations. What are the chances that we, we're going to be in another election, or or do you think you're going to get this budget passed? You know, I have to say on that, that I can't imagine any responsible leadership taking this country with everything we've just described, with all of those challenges alongside COVID-19 and Israel's internal um, resiliency of the social fabric, with all of that um, at stake, I can't imagine responsible leadership taking us to another election. But if it should pass that we cannot function as this unity government it was meant to function, as I said, that is all in the coalition agreement. And apart from the fact that as a lawyer, I would say you have to respect agreements apart from all of that and uphold the agreement that you sign. Um, if we cannot actually deliver what we promised, which is that technical unity that would enable to um, address all of the challenges, then we will see ourselves in what appears to be a fourth election. It'll be really a disaster for so many reasons. But I want to touch one more reason that I think is the most disastrous, and that, that is the public trust in, in its leadership. I think that it is imperative for responsible leadership um, to be committed to this, even just for the reason of having to be accountable to the entire Israeli public. When public trust is really at risk, and as we struggled with COVID-19, we realized that personal responsibility and the public's trust in leadership is what makes or breaks our ability to, um, to address this challenge. I keep saying, you know, COVID-19 alongside the challenges are multiple opportunities. Just we have to be um, the ones to identify them and to capitalize on those um, opportunities in order to thrust Israel into the next 70 years. And we have that possibility. There are incredible opportunities if we would identify them and work together to advance them. And I'll say there are a lot of things on the ideological level, if we depersonalize it and depoliticize it, there are many things that this government cannot do. But there are many things that it can and should, and I would say and must and has a responsibility to do. Uh, I'm very hopeful that there will be the kind of responsible leadership um, on behalf of the current prime minister and uh, a finance minister that will enable us to uphold the agreement to um, appoint senior appointments that are currently still um, sort of for over two years waiting to be appointed, chief of police. I mean, you can imagine at this time with mm -hmm. everything that's challenging Israel, um, uh, chief prosecutor, um, positions that need to be filled. And as I said, a budget that must be passed and the laws that have to be um, advanced in order for us to be able to actually work together systematically for the benefit of the entire Israeli public. 
as we know, in politics is the is the art of the achievable. And you talk about kind of what's uh, what's 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 necessary. But what steps would you take, kind of, if you were able to to depoliticize the process to kind of heal the rifts within Israeli society? So, you know, there are a few things. I think that the the understanding that the state of Israel has always um, been under great duress. And I, I say this with a great degree of understanding of the challenges that Israel has faced over 72 years of its life, of its renewed life in the state of Israel, the return of you know, Jews to the state of Israel 72 years ago. Um, I think that the opportunity here is actually to start creating good governance, protocols for collecting proper data, um, uh, proper processes, um, that have not yet been developed because we have been um, in the urgent rather in, than in the important. And actually that's where COVID-19 I think also presents the opportunity because it shines a spotlight on everything that has actually been just below the radar or just below the surface, but is very much there and now has risen above the surface and, and actually really um, I think drives the imperative to long-term planning with all that that means, the state of Israel at the moment without long-term planning, by the way, without long-term budgets, you can't have long-term planning, right? If a ministry doesn't know how it can reform because it doesn't know how it will pay for the reform, then neither the education nor the healthcare nor any of the, nor transportation can create long-term plans. And I think that we have the opportunity here as everything rises above the surface to know exactly what needs to be done for like a system overhaul, if you will, that, that really is a paradigm shift in the way that we've conducted ourselves thus far. And I say this with very little judgment. And when I take it to the internal rifts, I think that it's also an opportunity basically to renew the covenant to renew the covenant as a Jewish and democratic state of Israel, to renew the covenant to which we all um, embrace um, fundamental values that we can gather around. First, we need to identify them. I would say the Declaration of Independence, and in fact, I have a bill pending <laughs> if we ever begin the legislative process again, um, that would um, uh, you know, sort of uh, anchor the Declaration of Independence as a renewal of the commitment to that to the to the to the foundational values of the renewed state of Israel in the Jewish homeland 72 years ago, based on those Jewish and democratic values, um, and and I, and that's where I think that the the truth and reconciliation processes can begin. That authentic unity that I was talking about, that I am committed to, that is the reason that I entered. Um, and after many years of sitting in an organization named Tzav Pius, uh, Reconciliation Order, um, it's a play on words. Um, and for many years, really that's about um, healing the rifts within Israeli society. I think that we need to take it one notch higher. It must come from national leadership, that kind of responsibility of leading that truth and reconciliation process, if you will, in order to venture into the next 70 years has to be reflected in the personal responsibility taking of national leadership. It can't just continue being grassroots. The other thing I'd say is the Israeli public is already there. We're very lucky. I look at the election campaign results and see something that I think we should pause to observe. And that is that the majority of the Israeli public, the majority, and, and COVID-19 has really made this difficult, very difficult because everybody is struggling for livelihood and, and, and uncertainty has just taken things to a completely different place of discourse. But the majority of Israeli public is somewhere in, in the middle. The, it, it is not an extreme public. It is not a, you know, 
radical um, majority that's pulling the country in one way or in another. The only thing is that we have to be able to translate that and not only make it um, bottom up, but top down, have leadership that leads by example in that way that is non-sectorial and non-segmented and really um, sees itself representing and accountable to the entire Israeli public without the divides, rather focusing on all that unites us. So talking of what unites us, and very interesting to hear about this, the, the bill that you mentioned that kind of anchors in the uh, Declaration of Independence, um, it sounds similar to the, um, to the Jewish state law that was passed, um, but where, where, where would it differ and where do you stand on kind of the social contract with Israel's Arab citizens? So that social contract, and, it, and it's very good that you answer that, that you ask that, because the Declaration of, of Independence actually has the word equality, civic equality, in it about 30 times. Um, yeah. and, and, and the recognition of all peoples, you know, minorities mm. in the state of Israel as equal citizens. And I think that that is probably the biggest difference between the way that the nation state law was um, enacted. Actually, originally it had civic equality in it. Um, sadly, in my view, it was removed and, 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 and rightfully, created a bit of a backlash or a lot of a backlash with people who were um, um, felt very um, both, you know, dissociated from it and, and hurt by it. Um, and it enabled those that don't accept the state of Israel's right to exist as Jewish and democratic. And it's very important to me um, to highlight that Jewish and democratic, that and is probably the most critical part or the vav chibur, the connecting vav mm -hmm. between the two. Um, and I think that when we speak about the multiplicity of voices or viewpoint diversity, and maybe what Olim bring with them, and maybe even our responsibility to lean in, which is a large part of what brought me to Knesset specifically, um, if we sort of turn back to your first question, is we bring a very different perspective with us from wherever we come, by the way. Um, we bring the perspective that enables Jewish and democratic to coexist harmoniously, not without challenge, but they coexist within each of us um, that have made Aliyah. Um, and we know very well um, the challenges and also the possibilities or the opportunities alongside the challenges. And so therefore, I, I, I feel like the, the importance of leaning in of these voices, of ensuring the multiplicity or the viewpoint diversity at the decision-making tables um, is, 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 is imperative. I think that, you know, whereas Olim have been able to affect change on so many levels in Israeli society, if I look at, you know, the economy and the, you know, and the startups, and I look at, you know, uh, philanthropy and so forth, We've affected tremendous change, but we have not translated that into political or, um, you know, real public um, influence. And we have a very important role, as, as I see it, on this next challenge, which is, you know, what we spoke about, that Jewish and democratic, in ensuring that that includes absolutely um, every uh, minority and includes civic equality across the board, and at the same time, doesn't need to... Um, um, uh, I'd say, uh, apologize for the state of Israel being Jewish and democratic, as opposed to democratic, the state of all of its citizens, because there is only one such Jewish and democratic state in the world. And by the way, it's not only a Jewish state, it's Jewish and democratic. So I think that there's a very important equilibrium to be reached. And the Declaration of Independence said it best. If I think of you know, the US Constitution as a, you know, as a document, as a founding document, foundational um, to you know, the values that are upheld until this day in the United States, um, I think the Declaration of Independence has that kind of 
um, importance, significance, and with that carries the possibility of renewing the covenant, uh, this, you know, the social contract that we are all obligated to. So I can just take you back to the to one of your earlier answers that you talked about the the role you played um, campaigning for the captives uh, held in Gaza for the last uh, six and a half years. What's what's the what's kind of a, a status update? Sadly, we don't uh, we don't see a lot of, about it. Where do you think where do you think we are both in terms of uh, the the big picture Israeli uh, reaching understandings with with Hamas and the possibility to uh, to free the captives and return the bodies? So I think that the fact that we don't see a lot, of, a, lot, a lot about it is actually a part of the problem and a part of the challenge. And, and I see it as a part of our responsibility. And when I say we, um, it, you know, it depends on wherever each of us are, right? And what our circles of influence are. We the public, we the media, we the politicians. Um, I'd say this, I'd say um, the plight or what, what was dubbed or what I called at the time, the case the golden case and cause is just that. It's a case and cause. It's not just about Hadar Golden, um, as I said, alongside him is another deceased soldiers by soldier by the name of Oron Shaul and two civilians, Avera Mangistu and Hisham Asayed. And I'll say that those four very different identities, and they come from a range of Israeli society and a wide representation, um, really should and I believe could unite us around that mutual guarantee, that the values of mutual guarantee, um, um, that we owe each other, that are fundamental to the state of Israel's very existence, as far as I see them. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to clarify. Um, part of the um, struggle for their return um, over the last four years that I've been legal counsel um, um, to the cause has been to, um, uh, I would say. Uh, cement the understanding that international law principles must be upheld consistently. And the issue of reciprocity, which came up again in the last few days with a lot of discussion, does, recipro does reciprocity mean conditioning? It does not. Reciprocity is a foundational international law principle, but it's a foundational principle because without it, international law loses its ability to protect anybody. And I wanna say that Hadar Golden, and that's why it's the case and cause, was actually abducted and killed during one hour after actually an international ceasefire, humanitarian ceasefire, brokered by the United States and the United Nations, supported by the EU, was brokered. And one hour after it was violated. And so now we are in over six years of a standing violation of an international humanitarian ceasefire. And it is a humanitarian case and cause. And when I say that the state of Israel must um, understand and, um, and I would say internalize and affirm the language of rights. It is so that both our friends and our foes um, can be addressed in, in accordance with the language that they are utilizing. Because the truth is when the state of Israel continues to use the language of security, as opposed to the lingua franca of the international community, the language of rights, then we lose on the international front. We cannot communicate in the same way. And I, you know, we, if you don't speak the language, and I don't mean English, then you're just in abstention. You're not even in the discussion. That's what this case and cause has highlighted in many ways. But at the end of the day, it highlights much deeply, much much deeper, um, the 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 um, the notion that the that the social contract that we spoke about before um, has been, I would say, very very deeply impaired. That it needs to be remedied, that it needs to be addressed, because we haven't been able to make this a public, as you said, we hear very little about it. We haven't been able to put this in the public's eye in the way that I would have expected. And um, 
I think that it's been a long time sort of exposure for me, for all those involved in this struggle, um, of the challenges that we see now surrounding COVID-19. Ironically, I think, again, that's pushed up to the surface, the, the very fabric of Israeli society, which um, the resiliency of should trouble all of us and should be a priority as we approach what we do you know, now and next in terms of healing those rifts. Uh, and one more thing about that case and cause, and I want to say that in terms of the international community, we've been to the UN with it. We've received um, really across the board support from the international community in terms of declarations that they must be returned, that they should be returned, that it's unacceptable that they're held in violation of international law. But, you know, reciprocity is tricky in that way because a declaration is insufficient. And whereas reciprocity is not conditioning, reciprocity has to be demanded. And countries that do not play by the rules of the game, if you will, and don't ensure reciprocity have to be held to account. And I would say by the international communities, by, by international community, by the institutions, by the organizations that are committed or that are trustees of human rights, committed to upholding, maintaining and protecting human rights. And actually by not doing so in such cases and causes, by not doing so consistently, by not doing so and demanding reciprocity on this specific case and cause and sort of not hearing anything about it, that enables the culture of impunity, which we see not only in Israel, not only with regards to Hamas, a genocidal terror organization that alongside those four Israeli citizens is holding their families hostage, but also two million civilians in Gaza hostage. And until we push back on those regimes, on those organizations, and say you cannot hold the stick at both, hand, at both ends, you cannot benefit from international law and humanitarian aid without reciprocating and respecting the other fundamental principles of international law and human rights, i.e. humanitarian for humanitarian, which has become the motto, if you will, of the struggle for their return. Just before we go, could you tell us who you were in the Knesset, I presume, last week for the historic vote on the peace treaty with the, uh, with the United Arab, Arab Emirates? Um, what do you make of that deal and kind of what's your, what's your hope to see how it develops in the future? So I want to say that, first of all, it was a historic moment. It was very emotional being in Knesset and being a member of Knesset, if nothing else, on that day um, that we marked the Abraham Accords. And if I had to describe in a word um, the possible end of the Arab-Israeli conflict as we know it and the end to rejectionism, which actually was reflected in the three no's of the 1967 Khartoum conference, no to recognition, no to negotiation, and no to peace, and a real paradigm shift that can really enable the way forward for the conflicts, but including with the Palestinians, um, recognizing the imperative of yes to recognition, yes to negotiation, and yes to peace as the way to lead forward. And I'll say that I believe that the order is very important. Um, Recognition insinuates that I recognize your right to exist as who and what you are. In this case, as Israel being Jewish and democratic, which we referred to a little earlier on. Recognition is of course recognition of the state of Israel in recognizing you know, the partner, whoever they may be, is right to exist. Recognition is fundamental. And in order to be able to negotiate um, leading forward in an open and candid way, there has to be um, a first step of such recognition. That means that there cannot be incitement, that there cannot be, um, you know, uh, 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 a culture of hate and terror 
because that is not recognition. That calls um, on nations that are ready to join. And that's the historic moment that I think we're experiencing to first of all, recognize the state of Israel's right to exist. Yes to recognition. Then comes yes to negotiation. And we, when we look at the negotiation, negotiation process that's taking place, it's actually people to people. The warmth of this process and it's been going on for a long time, you know, below the radar. And the warmth that has emanated from this kind of negotiation, and now it has led to, you know, business negotiation and so on and so on. That is what enables ultimately, yes, to peace, peace that is sustainable, peace that's long lasting. And so I think that we're at a historic moment where there could be a real shift. And the other interesting thing, and maybe I would add, is it, you know, it's very revealing to know who objects to this paradigm shift. It's interesting to note, not only for Israel, it's interesting to note, I would argue for the rest of the world, because when you look at who um, objects to this paradigm shift, to the yes to recognition, negotiation and peace, and you identify that it's Iran and Turkey and Hezbollah and terror organizations such as Hamas, and you look at the leadership and the regimes, uh, and I'm not talking with the people, it's very important to highlight that. It's not the people of Iran, it's not the people of Turkey, it's not the people of Gaza. When you look at the leadership that is continuing with the rejectionist, um, you know, if we call them the three no's, um, then that is highlights the missed opportunity. It also highlights where our next challenges lie. And when I say our next challenges, I don't believe they're Israel's alone. So again, the state of Israel as a you know, canary in the mine shaft, if you like, as a predictor for where the rest of the world should be concerned with as well. Um, but the, I, I just want to, you know, you know, end maybe on a higher note and say the potential here is tremendous, and the excitement around the paradigmal shift that is possible, that that the potential that brings with it um, is uh, is tremendous, and I think we're really living at a potentially historic time. Absolutely. Well, after, you know, after dealing with some of the difficult challenges that Israel faces, it was very good to end on a positive note. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Richard.